Sentire Media. Hello everyone and welcome to A History of Italy. Episode 31, A Rebellion in the South, A Lion in the North, and How Henry II Got On. In the last regular episode, we wandered off a little bit to have a look at the Giudicati, the four independent reigns of Sardinia. Holy Roman Emperor Henry II is waiting for us to get back to him, but we'll just let him wait a little longer and hope he doesn't get too annoyed with us. After all, we have seen that he was very patient with the Romans and the Pope, and he ended up being made a saint, so he shouldn't mind too much. We mentioned that at the start of the new millennium, Italy was just as messy as it had been in the century before. Actually, it was an even messier mess, because not only were the great magnates, the marquis, the dukes, and so on, fighting against each other, but the lower nobles were chafing under the rule of the previous group. This wasn't happening just in the north either. There was also a growing desire for autonomy in the south. For example, in 1009, the city of Bari in Puglia rebelled against the Byzantine rule. We've said before that one of the characteristics of Byzantine rule in Italy was the very heavy taxation, which had allowed the Arabs to sweep through Sicily in the 9th century, finding little opposition from the tax-oppressed Sicilians. In the case of Bari, the rebellion was led by two men of Lombard origin, Melo, Melius, and his brother-in-law, Datto. Now, allow me a digression on the name of the former, Melo, which is also a little digression on the topic of the Italian language. If you won't allow the digression, I suppose you could just uh, fast-forward this a bit, and, or maybe zone out or something. Now, the word melo allows us to look at the issue of trees and the fruit that they bear, with a tree being masculine and the fruit being feminine. So, for example, pera, P-E-A-R, meaning pear, is the fruit, while the tree it comes from would be pero, with an O, and thus masculine, while in general words that end in an A are generally feminine. Ciliegia is a cherry, so the tree it comes from would be ciliegio. Coming back to where we left off, mela in Italian, M-E-L-A, is an apple, while an apple tree would be a melo, like the guy who headed the rebellion in Bari. If you'd like to hear more about language gender, the News Cappuccino episode this week is on Italian language and gender issues. So go over to patreon.com slash a history of Italy to listen to that. Incidentally, there was a magazine article some time ago in an English magazine asking readers to write in and give their opinion on what gender various things would be if the English language had genders like Latin languages or German. One reader wrote in and suggested that a hammer should be masculine. This was because it has not evolved much in the last 5,000 years, but it's useful to have around the house. So, back to Bari, where a rebellion was being led by an apple tree and his brother-in-law, Datto. 
Now, apart from being led by a plant, the rebellion was interesting for a number of reasons. The first is that it actually lasted for almost ten years, also taking advantage of the fact that the Byzantines were busy fighting off the Bulgars at that time. Then the players involved were also interesting, and we'll see them in a bit. The whole thing kicked off on the ninth of May, ten o nine, and involved the cities of Bari, Trani, and Bitonto. Now. The head Byzantine official in Italy was known as the Catepano, and the Catepano in this case was a man by the name of John Curcuas. But he only really comes into our story to be taken straight out because he died in the initial rebellion. The rebels had the support of some local Lombard nobles, and the Pope Sergius the Fourth at this time wasn't actually supporting them. But let's say he didn't do much to oppose them, and even encourage them. Unfortunately, they didn't get quite enough support. And when a new Catepano was nominated and came along, namely Basil Mesardonitis, he was able to take back Bari in 1011 after a long and grueling siege. Many of the citizens died, and Melo's wife and son were captured and taken to Constantinople. Melo himself was able to escape and ended up in Capua, while Dato sought refuge with the Benedictine monks in Monte Cassino. In 1015, the apple tree made his way to the court of Emperor Henry II. Here's our emperor back in the story, whom he asked for support to kick the Byzantines out of Italy. Something the German Holy Emperors were looking to do anyway. However, Henry was not quite ready to look under that particularly complicated rock just yet, and so, although he made Melo Duke of Puglia, a place that Henry didn't actually have any authority over, he sent him back practically empty-handed. Melo was not discouraged. He once again was able to whip up the support of some of the Lombard nobles. And the dissenting cities, but going back to what made his rebellion interesting, he also got some mercenaries on board. Now, these weren't just any old wishy-washy, wimpy, run-of-the-mill mercenaries. Oh no, these were Vikings. Now, I can hear you clamour in protest. Hold on, hold on. Are we talking the Ragnar Lothbrok type Vikings with the longboats and raids and Valhalla and all that? Well, sort of. These were men of Viking origin who were actually Normans. Once again, I can almost hear you splutter in disbelief. What are you on about, Mike? Are you reading from 1066 and all that? What are they doing way down here? We're not talking about the Battle of Hastings or anything. Get back down to your country and stop messing around. What would Normans be doing all the way down there in Italy anyway? Well, we know that the Normans were a group of Scandinavian origin who made their way down to modern-day France and given the lands that then took their name Normandy by the Frankish kings to keep them quiet. Hopefully, they also became Christians and started to settle down and develop the Duchy of Normandy. 
Now, that didn't mean that they had completely settled and abandoned their restless, roving Viking ways. What's more, their custom of primogeniture, that is, the fathers leaving everything to the firstborn son, meant that there were a load of second and third sons and so on who had nothing to their name and were perfect candidates for a little bit of adventure. We're going to talk more in depth about the Normans in Italy in a few episodes, so we'll leave them there for now. Suffice it to say that this is one of the first instances in which they started to make their appearance on the Italian stage. And the part they are going to play will be far from a minor one. So, with the help of the Lombard nobles and the Norman mercenaries, in this case led by Gilbert Voiter, Melo was able to score a few early successes against the Byzantines, making his way from Capua back to Trani. In the end, however, the lack of real lasting unity allowed the new Byzantine Catepano to definitively defeat Melo on the 1st of October, 1018, near the town of Cani, where the Romans had suffered their most devastating defeat at the hands of Hannibal. To this day, the location is called Canne della Battaglia, meaning Cani of the Battle. There's not a whole lot there, although there are some interesting ruins of a medieval village on a hilltop. However, with a little imagination, you can stand there on the hilltop and imagine the legions lining up, looking nervously over at the most terrifying man in Roman history. The Battle of Cannae we're talking about now occurred over 1,200 years later and resonated much less. Poor Datto, the brother-in-law, was captured and eventually put to death in 1021. Melo, however, made it out and ended up back in Henry II's court again. He spent the last two years of his life there and was buried with great honour in the Cathedral of Bamberg. If there was a lesson that the Holy Roman Emperor could get from the whole southern issue, it was that a. A strong leader with a strong army could impose his will on the fragmented political situation in the south. And B, if a bunch of rebellious Lombards could give the Byzantines a run for their money, perhaps the time was ripe to finally kick them off the peninsula for good. So, despite the fact that Henry placed Germany much more at the centre of things than the Ottos had, the time had come also for him to head south over the Alps. He didn't have too much trouble getting through northern Italy, since thanks to his becoming good pals with Boniface of Canossa, things were looking quite stable. Indeed, the Canossa family, who we'll dedicate at least a few episodes to in the near future, had continued to expand their power base. The main man of the Canossa family this time was Bonifacio Boniface. He had won out over the challenge of his younger brother, Conrad Corrado, whom he had defeated in the Battle of Coviolo in 1021. Conrad, the younger challenging brother, had survived the battle and was forgiven by his older brother, who took him to Reggio Emilia to recover. Conrad was getting better and thought that a really good way to help the healing process along would be to participate in a joust. So, 
he died. It was Boniface that moved the family's capital, so to say, or their power base, to Mantua, Mantova, particularly because there was no bishop count there, just a regular old bishop. So there was no one to have to share the civil power with. It is in the early 11th century that Mantua received the visit of Saint Simeon, and a legend sprung up about his visit. Simeon is actually known in English as Simeon of Mantua, because that's where he ended up living in a monastery, south of the city in Polirone. Indeed, in Italian, he is known as Simeone di Polirone. He was a monk of Armenian origin who had made his way to Rome, performed a couple of exorcisms, and then made his way up north. Around the time he got to Mandova, it seems that the city was being terrorized by a terrible lion roaring around. People were afraid to leave their homes for fear of being eaten. Saint Simeon arrived in the city and confronted the beast, which, at the sight of the holy man, became docile as a kitten, even licking the man's hand, and the city was saved. Now, that sounds like a nice little legend, but unfortunately it's not true. However, most legends have some grain of truth, and it seems that, indeed, there was a lion in the picture. Bonifacio of Canossa had a sort of pet lion tied up in front of his palace, and St. Simeon went over to pet it, and for some reason or other, decided that it would be a good idea to stick his right hand in the lion's mouth, and was lucky enough to get a licking rather than have it bitten off. Now, why on earth he would want to do something like that is beyond me. If I were to see a lion on a leash hanging round outside a building, my first thought would most definitely not be, well, look, a lion, let me go and stick my hand in his mouth. Then again, I suppose we all entertain ourselves as we can. While we're on the topic of Mantova, I really recommend a visit there. Obviously, if you've never been to Italy, you'll want to see the big three, that is Rome, Florence and Venice. But once you've checked the main boxes, cities like Mantova are a really pleasant surprise. It's surrounded by the east, north and west by a lake. Indeed, one of the things you can do there is take a boat trip on the river Mincio. Aside from the usual Italian architecture, they also have a pretty good literature festival. The more attentive Shakespeare fans will remember that it is in Mantua that Romeo went when he was banished from Verona. Indeed, the two cities are not very far from each other. So while you head up to Mantua, it's worth visiting Verona as well. Anyway, we were talking about the Canossa and their lion. Now, the Canossa and the emperors had been all chumming that ever since Adalberto Atto Canossa had helped out Adelaide of Italy and kept her safe while Otto I came to get her back in 951. At the same time, Henry II didn't want them to get too powerful, and indeed, back in 1014, he had granted some privilegi, some rights, to the free citizens, the Arimanni, under the power of the Canossa, to keep the family in check a bit. So, with a free pass through his mate Bonifacio's lands, 
In 1022, Henry II took down a pretty impressive army of about 50,000 soldiers, which was enough to inspire loyalty in every duke, lord, or any other man of power who set eyes on it. He made his way first to Benevento, where he met the Pope, and then to the city of Troy, obviously not THE Troy, but Troia in Capitanata, near the modern-day Foggia in Puglia. He laid siege to the city for over six weeks or three months, according to which source you believe. But in the end, the city capitulated. It seems that the inhabitants welcomed the imperial troops as liberators, and as a thank you, infected them with cholera. At this point, Henry made his way back to Germany. He had not really managed to get rid of the Byzantine presence in southern Italy, but having placed some loyal key rulers in strategic positions such as Capua, for the moment he could be content. He was not content at all with the march back. As Henry and his army hurried back up to the north, they fell like flies. The emperor got back just in time to die on the 12th of July, 1024, in Gottinger. He had survived the Pope, Benedict VIII, by just two months. So, with the Emperor gone and the Pope gone, the power game was on once again. The game, of course, would be played, yet the rules seemed to be changing just a bit. In particular, the players were changing. It wasn't just the great lords, but also the Arimanni, the free men, and in the cities, the free citizens. The cities themselves were now often on a par with the great lords and landowners, as we saw in the last episode with the exploits of Pisa and Genova against the Saracens. In the north, the Canossa were building a power base, and in the south, the Normans were putting down roots that would spread very quickly. Next time, We'll see how Henry's successor got on with the whole Italian situation, in particular with a pesky bishop which spread a legend that resonates to this day. Thanks very much to everyone for listening, in particular to my faithful Patreon supporters. Now, I've had a little bit of feedback about the Patreon level, so keep that coming in, but at the moment we've put Galileo and Dante into the picture, So see if you like my division. The entry level is the Garibaldi level, the practical, earthy army man. The second level is the Mazzini level, more interested in high politics and ideals. Then we have Galileo, who looks above the world to the stars, and finally Dante, that looks beyond the stars to the heavens. So thanks very much to my Garibaldi level patrons, Preston, Roberta, Sean and Jeff. To my Mazzini-level patron, Benjamin. To the Galileo troupe, Chris, Stephen, Vincent, Jay and Shelby. And to our Dante-level, Sen. Thank you very much and to everyone else for listening. Remember that if you have any comments, questions or whatever, you can get in touch. Hello at ahistoryofitaly.com On the same URL, you can click through to our social media, Facebook and now Twitter at A History of Italy. And if you have been thinking of supporting the program, but like me, really don't have that extra fiver hanging around, you can purchase a copy of the K-Rock Chelsea Hotel 
our sponsor, which you can find on the website. Remember that this week's News Cappuccino episode will soon be coming out, talking all about language and gender. Thanks again to everyone for listening, and until next time, arrivederci. Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.